0: Unfiltered, uncensored, and unapologetic. This
1: is the Retail Warzone Podcast. All right. So this evening, um, I have Adam McKinnon with us and Trent Mercer. The things that we have in common are we worked for music stores. Um, Trent and I both worked for Guitar Center for several years. Uh, Trent finished out his career there as a store manager unceremoniously, uh, unfortunately. And then I also worked with Adam. He was the store manager for the direct competition in the market that we were in. So we're going to talk a little bit about the good and the bad, you know, differences in culture, the different places, you know, we've been, you know, kind of how we saw the market change and, and how people... Some businesses haven't really had, like, a forward-thinking kind of plan still rooted in old concepts that, you know, really at this point in time don't work. Um, I will say, Trent, I don't know if you remember, um, I'm wearing a relic from the past. Laguna, I noticed that. Laguna, Laguna? Guitars. Guitar uh, Center shirt. Laguna. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have so many of these damn shirts. But anyway, um, what we'll do is, first, I want to go through both of you, uh, let you give your spiel about, you know, where you worked in music and retail. Um, Adam, you do not have to name if you do not want to. Um, You know, how much time you were there (laughs) or whatnot. Uh, And same thing with you, Trent. So, go ahead, Adam.
0: Sure. So, yeah, my name's Adam McKinnon. Uh, I was a... I was in music retail for a little under 13 or 14 years, depending on how you count it. Um, I began my career at a small uh, operation. Uh, If if you're uh, in the industry in the top 200, I started off at about um, 150 or so, a small operation called Accent Music in Delaware. And then I spent about five years or so there, and then... Uh, moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where I worked for Ken Stanton Music for roughly about uh, eight seven, seven years, seven, eight years, something like that. So uh, that is uh, that is where I came. I was a store manager for all but one or two of those years that I worked in the industry. And, um, you know, independent stores. So, you know, um, nothing corporate, but at the same time, you know, went from like 150 to like, you know, 30 on the top 200. So uh, small and big, small and midsize operations in the family world.
1: Um, Also, too, I want to throw out that Adam also uh, is the creator and host of a podcast called Romantic About Baseball. And he's also an excellent damn writer. So I have links in the description of the video to his podcast and also to his sub stack where he's going to kind of outline his path through music instrument retail. I, I highly recommend checking it out because dude can write like ain't nobody's business. I, I got to give you props there. It's great shit. Plus, plus, Thank plus you awesome. cool. Thank you. there,
0: there will be more, there will be more coming at some point. I should say I put the first one out and then, I got distracted with other work things, but there are, there are more. Yeah. And, and
1: plus two, I mean, he's even written training manuals. We'll just leave that for a minute. <laughs> Trent, your turn. All right. So my name is Mercer.
2: Uh All my experience in the music instrument retail was at guitar center. So I think it was like 2008. Uh, I moved from Illinois where I'm from to Atlanta. And that was the first job I got down there. Uh, Selling guitars on the guitar floor So that was uh, Interesting for me Because I'd never done anything like that at the time But I I really enjoyed it And uh, you know Things worked out that I ended up having to come back To Illinois um, And I wasn't able to transfer at the time So I quit, came back to Illinois And then ended up getting rehired The next year in Peoria I worked in Peoria From 2009 To 2012 in 2012, I was moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was there from 2012 uh, until December of 2015. And I was moved to Des Moines, Iowa to become a store manager. And that is where my career with Guitar Center came to an end.
1: It was in Des Moines, Iowa. Sounds like a lovely place. So, <laughs> all the but- places I've been. Yep, so uh, my So you know, my spiel was you know I was I was a sales manager for what was affectionately known the Black Pearl GC seven six two in Marietta, Georgia. Uh, it was a very bizarre time for me because when I came on board, I I just got done with Hobby Lobby, and it was actually my wife who said, "Hey, why don't you go do something you might enjoy for a change?" Well, there, there's a novel concept, and she said, "Why don't you apply for Guitar Center?" Now, mind you, I come from the, the the retail world, right? So I show up to drop off my application in like dress pants, a shirt, and a tie, you know, d- you know, doing the whole spiel, and then I get called for an interview. And uh, at that time, our office had a couch in it, <laughs> and uh, J Bell was the store manager, and he calls me in, and I go up there, and I'm I'm dressed like I'm interviewing for some like fucking regular retail interview. And I have to sit on this couch and he looks at me and he says, well, why guitar center? And I was like, uh, why not? (laughs) And his exact comment was, well, you, you've got a really pretty resume. Are you sure you want to do this? (laughs) And I'm like, yes, absolutely. So that became, you know, quite the love affair. And I will say, um, I, I'm getting old and the date's, kind of get lost on me i do know i'm thinking at the end of my tenure there that would be about 12 years ago because i had a, a video pop up of where we had these shindigs in our garage you know where all the guitar center people would come over and we we yeah. drink and grill and play and whatnot but i'm thinking around 2003 2004 may have been when i started i still know my employee number it's was at 054846 Um, but at that point in time, like we were just discussing off camera, guitar center was a different beast. And the thing with it was, it was a magical time because guitar hero, the video game was massive. So I wound up working in the store when the business was really, really, really booming. Every kid out there that was playing the video game, all of a sudden wanted to become slash And their parents were coming in, you know, buying them guitars and whatnot. And also at the same time, Adam, I forgot about this. That was really when Taylor Swift started picking up. So there was a a, a huge influx of females coming in, you know, wanting acoustic guitars. Now, when you want to talk about culture, you know, back then, you know, you got a bunch of guys working in this guitar store. And it was really kind of sad because it was kind of like the cartoon dog with the tongue hanging out. And every girl that walked in, they were kind (laughs) of (laughs) – and I –
0: the very predictable. Yes, yes, group. and
1: and the amount of, of females who were so pissed off and angry because the sales guys would go in and say, "Oh, are you looking for a guitar for your boyfriend?" <laughs> and I'm like, "No." It's not no, patronizing not at all. At all. <laughs> so uh, that that was kind of my gig. You know, I wound up having to move back to South Carolina. I transferred to a smaller store here, and you know, Adam, as you know, you know, in a small store that has established salespeople you know, and there's not a lot of volume there's not a lot of traffic, you know, those people have become somebody's guy and you just can't weasel your way in there and become the guy there just wasn't enough to go around. And so I wound up going back to regular yeah. retail. So, um, Adam, for you kind of give us your perception of the difference between the independent store that you worked at up North and KSM, like difference in culture, um, things you felt both did good and both did poorly.
0: Sure. Um, so the biggest difference, first off, is organization. You know, the thing with the thing about music retail and, and anyone who's worked there will tell you is that you have to have a strong like organization, you know, and, and that's to me the biggest difference from my from Accent to KSM was That, uh, you know, at Accent, it was very kind of free reign. I mean, I was literally cutting POs and running restock reports and everything everything within my first month of getting my keys. So it was kind of one of those things where it was almost uh, the virtue of availability when you were there. So therefore you advance. Um, So... uh, The thing with a store like Accent is that because it's in a small market, it was able to get away with a lot more of that type of thing. It was able to carry smaller brands, run smaller lines, thinner inventory, because, you know, you're serving a state with three counties in it. You know, the fact is that Guitar Center didn't move into Delaware until and. 2011, 2012, something like that. Don't hold me to that timeline, but something along those lines. And so there just wasn't a lot out there. So the biggest difference there, when you go from there to say K- KSM, which is in an ultra competitive market. Um, I had never uh, really worked in a market like that. And the one biggest thing that jumps out at you right away is hierarchy and organization. And When you have those two things in, say, a small store and then, like, a medium-sized store, that's going to be the hugest difference between those two because the hierarchy and the organization of it is both a uh, good thing because, you know, you kind of have a roadmap, you kind of know where things are, but it's also your biggest inhibitor because, like you said, you're dealing with organization, but, you know, there's always exceptions for for this person or that person and this person on that day. And and so it's like a small town, but they have a, you go from one small town when the, where like the cat is a mayor Mm -hmm. and that's okay. And then you go to another small town where like there's, there's an entire executive branch for a hundred people. So that's kind of, that's kind of the, that was the biggest difference going from those two Right
1: Now, Trent, the one thing I want to ask you, I mean, you spent your time at the Black Pearl. You came in under J Bell, correct? Sure did. All right, so tell us the. Di- All right, so you you know what the vibe was there. How different was it like in the Atlanta market versus you know moving back to Illinois? Um. It was harder for me in Atlanta,
2: believe it or not, because I hadn't established myself. You know what I mean? I didn't, you know, back in Peoria, I was in the music scene. I was playing in bands, playing shows all the time. I knew people. I had connections. You know what I mean? I, I could have an established customer base from people that I knew that were also musicians. So in Atlanta, it was like...
1: uh. Sales was very cutthroat at the time, dude. Yeah, we'll we'll get I'll get into that here in a minute. <laughs> like this was
2: this was before all the culture shocks started happening. So sales was very cutthroat. Like me coming in as a new guy and especially as an out-of-towner, like I didn't know anybody there. You know what I mean? I was just like the dude that came walking in one yep. day and interviewed, and you guys were like, Oh shit, yeah, we'll hire him. And <laughs> that was you know, that was it. Yeah. But you, you know, coming in as that new guy, you'd start to make sales. And then all of a sudden, you know, you'd, you'd have another sales guy coming up to you, like, hey, man, that's my guy.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. We did then, have
2: that. Yeah. I know that feeling, mm-hmm. Yeah, And, you know, when you're new, you're kind of just like, oh, well, okay. I, I guess I don't know anybody around here. Like, I guess that's his guy. Like, you know, hey, can you put me on the sale for a certain percentage? Because we were all on commission. Yep. So, well, you know, reason, I mean, like, you guys were all great. Like, I ended up becoming really good friends with a lot of you guys, and Steve, mm -hmm. you and I have stayed in touch over the years, really, since 2008. You know what I mean? So, I've developed some really long term good friendships from people that I worked with there. Um, but that's why it was, I, I would say it's harder. It was harder for me there because I could come back to Peoria and let like all my people know I'm back. Right. And that's what happened when I came back. Like I went back to the Peoria store and just started killing it right away. And I was actually doing better sales wise in Peoria than I did in Atlanta.
1: Well, Atlanta was rough. And, you know, we did have a sales guy that also um, Adam is very familiar with, uh, Mr. Cheney Brandon. <laughs> um, and, and it was like, look, I, I, I'm not I gonna know. lie. It was, if the ranker of sales came out the first day of the month, we would brag cause one of us was over Cheney for just that one day. Obviously it was the first day of the month. Right. Yeah. And his he. Pops, and, you know. Yeah. And he probably didn't even work that day. And his ass come in there with his little Bluetooth head headset. He walking around talking to people. All of a sudden, he's not on the ranker at all. And uh, and all of a sudden, he's got like fifteen grand. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know. Yeah. But but you know he he was entrenched. I mean, he was a very good drummer and he had a lot of connections. You know, he did a lot with Seven Dust and obviously Collective Soul and those guys and whatnot. So, you know, he had, he had an end. Uh, T-Pain, I remember he did, he was doing a lot with him. I remember that. uh, Yeah. And, but you know, the one thing I will say, you know, from a culture standpoint, you know, the one thing that Guitar Center did well at that small window, and this is something that the competitor I felt didn't do at all. Guitar Center, at least in our store and in our district, was way concerned about the vibe in the store. You know, yeah. you, you you they wanted the customer to walk in and understand that, yeah, we were sales guys or, or whatever we were doing, but we loved what we were doing. We were having a great fucking time doing it. And, you know, they would try to measure that. They really would. It would be like, you know, oh, the vibe feels off. Come on, guys. You snap out of it. Whereas in the competition, it was kind of punitive and there there was no free thinking. And and there obviously was no having a good fucking time. <laughs> there that that, that that just didn't wash. And um but I remember times like at GC where if business was slow and the store was put together fine and whatnot there'd be a group of us sitting in the middle of the store, like jamming and like doing cover songs because it was part of the vibe. You know, it was, it we wanted people to enjoy being there and just on the record coming from retail, uh, um, Bell used to say, they can say whatever they want to about me, but I hired you (laughs) and, and, um, I was Merch Master Steve, and I'm, I'm proud to say my first year there, I actually clocked in $10,000 worth of overtime.
2: <laughs> Look, Steve, I will say this. I got complimented in Peoria on my merchandising skills, and I always was like, man, it was this dude Steve in Atlanta taught me how to set displays up like this. <laughs> yeah, I always give credit for that.
0: <laughs> well, it's possible, too. I mean, vibe is... Vibe is super important, and you know some of that. Like a, a, a business a store, a district store, district manager, owner, whatever, they'll tell you, "Oh, well, you have fun when things are going good." But you know, I used to argue, and I used to tell my team at the store that I used to run that you mm-hmm. eventually took over, Steve. Like when we were going good, that's fine. But when we were weren't going good, like that was no time to walk away from that you know that was don't let you know don't let the customer know that things aren't going good is that's when you need it the most that's when you need the vibe that's when you need that type of thing and i think in some when you're not under like a micromanager or you're not under that watchful eye it is possible to achieve that but that's not always the case if you have someone watching that's
1: you correct know. and you know the the one thing I will say about that location Adam and this is and this is coming from a business sense this is coming from managing stores for twenty odd years right is you know when I came on board, you know the volume that place was doing right yeah honest is what it was that entire store could have ran with two people working a first shift and two people working a second shift. Overlap for lunch, and that's it. But when you're required to have your entire staff of five to seven people working on a Saturday, knowing good and damn well it's not going to be that busy, and you've got people walking all over each other trying to get a deal, that is that is just bad business. It, it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. Well, that's and that's a whole nother ball of wax. There, I don't know. I don't know where the discussion's going to go, but that that's a whole nother topic in and of itself. Where you know you're you're um, you're managing uh, based on tradition rather than based on you know what the business actually
1: needs. And and you were attuned to that. I mean, you knew. I mean, that was the one thing I told you. Yeah. You know, when when I first met you, I mean, you knew what was up, but your hands were tied. It's being in
0: tune with the thing about when you're in a company that's a little smaller and maybe in in, in a corporate store like Guitar Center, there's probably a different type of position. There's always a position. There's always a link in the chain somewhere that sees the ground level and then gets input from the corporate level. That's the hardest position to be in because you're, you're keyed in on what corporate wants to do. But you're also under. You also see and you know uh, what's happening at the ground level. That was always the toughest thing for me. Was always trying to figure, trying to discern like what ownership really wanted, and then try to find a way to dispel. You know, to get that over to the staff. That clearly, like nobody, everybody knew no, we didn't need to. Be. Now, when we were going good, when that yeah. store was going good, we needed everybody exactly. You did. But it, right, well, the, the thing was not every store I went to needed that. So yeah, there was a, there was a few phantom sick days that were called it. There was a few, uh, you know, last minute food poisonings or something that happened because, you know, Hey, if you didn't want to be there, then I didn't need right. you, you. know, and,
1: and, and, you, know, and, and you know, and that's the thing to me is I just feel like, you know, it, it's, it is kind of unfair to judge the two based on the time frames I worked there. I mean, nothing's ever going to hold a candle to that three to four year window where GC was just firing on all fucking cylinders. I mean, it, it, I mean, it, that was madness. I mean, and then to go, you know, to the competition and whatnot and, and learn real fast that, you know, it's going to be their way or no way. And, um, it's fully understandable. I mean, I mean, it's their business. I mean, they, they, they can run it exactly how they choose to run it. There There is nothing wrong with that. Right? right. But you have to question some decisions and whatnot from just a business standpoint. And the one thing I wanted to talk about that encompasses both places, and I don't know if you did it at accent is what guitar center called the card file and what at KSM, you know, Getting the sales. Um, Steve, yes. The,
2: the card file ended up becoming a monster. That I I don't know if you were around for when um, the the sales follow up system rolled out, but card file ended up becoming this monster of a sales lead program. That it honestly was just a nightmare, dude. And, and it got to a point where we were forcing people to do it because we were being told to force people to do it.
1: Right. <laughs> and, and that's that's the thing about, about, you know, I will say when we were at GC, it, there was some productivity that came with it. I mean, there were some results because you had certain guys, right? But you only had like a handful, you know that you knew you've got this guy who collects like signature guitars. You know the call of that guy, and those worked. But you fast forward to like today, okay, where people are more conscious of their free time, and and you've got no call lists and things like that. You know, you know, it it, it almost borderlines in harassment because there's a lot of people you wind up calling who may have been in just a couple of times to get some strings or whatnot. And they either A, they're not going to answer the phone, or B, they're going to be like, why the fuck are you calling me? And to me, when you run campaigns like that, and and music instrument retail is not the only one, okay? I mean, there's others that do it. It borderlines harassment, and you're interfering with people's personal time. And that is something that I I just feel like is archaic and needs to go away.
0: Well, and, and not to jump in front here, but like what Hero said, in the comments. Um, what did he say here? He said, there's seen be a lot of well it worked before no need to reevaluate. That's what all of that is. That's what all, mm-hmm. that's what all of that is. It's, it's you, it's kind of like, it's kind of like fishing, I guess. Like, you know, I know it's kind of a on the nose analogy, but when you think about it, like they use these programs, like the call out programs, because yeah, you'll call out a hundred times, but you'll get two sales. And the whole premise is like, Oh, you wouldn't have gotten those two sales if you didn't make those calls. So your net two sales and what else were you doing at that time? So they, it's like, you know, music retail in particular, more than other industries is built on this premise that like, Oh, well, if you're not busy right at this moment, you need to be doing something. And if you're not doing, you know, if you're not trying to generate sales on your own, then you're not being active enough. And that's why you don't have the customer base that like Cheney Brandon has. That's why you don't have that customer base because you're not making phone calls. And it's it's a false premise. It's 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 a lie. It is. It's not true. It's not true. I can promise you, I've you know, I, I was not the best salesman. I I kind of had it, I would turn it on when I needed it, but I didn't need to call people to sell to be top salesman wherever I was, I didn't need to. I did,
1: but I didn't well, need to. Well, to your point, it's not about the phone calls. It's about the hustle in the store. I mean, right. it, it really is, and it's and and it's it's a skill of knowing how to talk to people and how to lead people to a decision and whatnot. Now, look, I ain't gonna lie, fish out of water trying to sell fucking brass instruments. That 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 was terrible. I, I hated that. It was like, uh, you know. That was my favorite, well, you, man, because you were you're damn good. at
0: You are selling to the mom. Well, you could see you were selling to the parents that had the money in their yeah. pocket already. Like, That's true. You they, they and they didn't know the the easiest thing about. I, I will tell you this, and I and I'm sorry, and again, I,
1: I oh, like go I'm right ahead, you, bro. The, the
0: the thing in all of the years that I've done this, I've only ever worked in stores where you had to work every department. I worked at a, at a store that had departments, but I was the manager, so I went to every department. The easiest sales I ever made was in band and orchestra. If you are listening to this and you're currently in music retail and you're not in your band and orchestra department, find a way to get to it. Because I'm telling you, it is the easiest way to make uh, to make sales. You're selling to people. It's kind of like it's kind of like you're selling meat to people who don't know anything about food. Like they know they need it. They know they need it, you know what I mean, and like it's expensive, so it must be good. Oh, and like I read a, I googled an article on it, so therefore it must be the right thing. And all you need to do is just just validate, like, yeah, that's the right thing.
1: Yeah. that's what you mean. That, you, that's that's very very you fucking know? well put. And also in the chat, Brent says if you don't update your business models as customers change habits, you don't have a successful business. Thank you. That is correct. And I will say that I, uh... both companies um, were guilty of not changing habits. I mean, they really were. Now, talking about sales, let's let's talk about sales. Okay, let's give some inner working stuff here for people who haven't shopped. Now, I know at KSM, it was visible, but not like at GC. You know, the whole GC model was, you know, Adam, are you familiar with green screen? Have you heard what green? Okay.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I've heard the horrors of green
1: green screen. screen. If you could navigate it, was like just a wonderful tool. But to you guys out there, I mean, not trying to give out trade secrets, but hey, there's inflation. Money's tight. Let's let's talk. Okay, so at Guitar Center, it was the first place I ever worked in my entire career, where at the bottom right hand part of the screen, you could see the store's sales for the day and your profit for the day. Yeah. And and you learn some amazing things when you start being able to see these numbers in this business. And the one thing about Guitar Center that was great, and, and Trent, you know this, the employee discount was, was the bomb. Huh. It yeah. was awesome. I mean, you know, we even but- got... At seven six two for a while, we were able to buy used gear at what we paid for it.
2: Yeah. That went on for a while, but to what you were saying, that green
1: screen system, if you if you got to learn it, yeah, it it was very insightful. Very. So what happens is especially back in those days when people are we we had a statement that we used at GC that some sales guys, if they weren't able to close the deal, they would quote unquote drop their pants. And what that meant was they could see in real time what the cost was on the instrument they were selling, what the price was the GLP guaranteed Lotus price or whatever. And then they get to decide how much they're going to drop that to make the sale. Now, the one thing I will say about GC at that point in time, because it was banging was there was a lot more anonymity. You did not have to make a phone call like you did at the competition to make a deal. There was a statement that every Saturday, J-Bell would say, Ted is in the building. And what Ted meant was take every deal. And that's why we did the business that we did. Yeah, there were some guys who couldn't sell very well and that would like drop it down to like, God, like just a hair above cost. Yeah. But you know, there were guys that, you know, perceived value is, is a big thing. And Adam, you know all about perceived value and trying to sell, you know, this merchandise. And I remember one time getting yelled at, well, not yelled at, j pulls me into the office and he's like, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, what? He's like, your gross margin is too high. Now, coming from where I came from, walking into this business, I'm thinking, That is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Why are you telling me my gross margin is awful? You're you're walking deals, exactly. That's what he said. But, but he realized soon thereafter that that wasn't the case because I figured something out. I figured out, Trent. You remember how we cost average strings into the guitar? Yes. Yeah, so when yeah, you're thr-
2: that's with me for years. Dude. Yeah,
1: so when when you're throwing in strings or whatnot, you cost average it into the thing. So, and and it doesn't really affect the margin. So, for all you people out there that shop this stuff, just know if it's made of wood, if you push hard enough, you can get a deal. If it's electronic, you're shit out yeah. of luck.
2: But you got to. Yeah, I will say that you got to be. Go ahead. One, Grant, one thing. So that culture of take every deal, you know, when it really was about pushing the sales as hard as you possibly could, and and you did have leeway on making deals where regular sales guys could, you know, work out deals with customers on stuff and you'd pretty much always get it approved. I, I mean, there wasn't too many times your manager would be like, no, no, no. When did it but, change? So I took over as, so in Peoria, I I was a salesperson and then an assistant manager. And then at the time, the position was sales and training manager. So I did that in Peoria for a little bit. And then I got moved to Milwaukee for that same position, which eventually ended up becoming customer service manager.
1: Oh, they changed STM to customer service? Yes,
2: dude. And that was about the time when everything started changing because they had already started stamping out the the and dealing culture, right? right? And the old school guitar center customers were used to that. They were used to that shopping experience, to being able to come in and be like, no, nah, no, nah, come on. I know you can give me a better deal than that. I know you can get... And we got put into a position where... When people were doing that, we would have to escalate it to either me, the customer service manager, or the store manager, which became really awkward for the customers.
1: Well, how how many of those did you turn down though? Like, I mean, we're like on the we, we average, walked, yeah. we would walk we would walk deals. Oh, Jesus! I mean,
2: yeah, and it was just because like. They were they they started a big push on the margin, right? And so this was also about the time they started really messing with the commission structures and how the salespeople were getting paid, right? Right. So it it changed to where like I
0: re- I remember when this happened. By the way, I can't we, remember we,
2: if they uh, got rid of the because you got a percentage of sales and a percentage of margin.
1: Hey, hold up, hold up a sec, Trent. I think I know where you're going, Adam. I'm assuming you got an influx of applications? Uh,
0: we got an influx of Insta-hires. Uh-huh. Okay,
1: got. continue, Trent. So
2: that's when they really started pushing on that, and then the commission structures changed. And, I mean, I haven't been with Guitar Center for almost six years now, so you have to forgive me on some of this. I might not remember, you know. But the commission structures changed, They sold it to everybody as a way for, oh, you can really make more money with it this way and da-da-da-da-da. And that ended up not being the case for a lot of people.
1: If I'm not mistaken, most stores are strictly hourly now. Well, eventually,
2: that was the shift. Right. We're getting rid of commission. Now all this change is taking place as I'm a customer service manager and I'm I'm training to be a store manager, right? But Steve, I came up, you know, a while back, really in in the culture of that company. It was a while back, you know, it was a different culture. Right. So I had the whole time this this idea in my head of what it was going to be like to be a store manager, right? I came up with very proactive store managers. Like J Bell was always on the floor. Yes, he was. You know what I mean? He was very proactive. He would help, you know, he knew I was new. If he knew I needed help with something, if he knew maybe I was dealing with a customer that he knew was difficult, like he would come in and he would help me out. Yes, he would. and he was very proactive in training. Like that's one thing that, like, I feel like my training prepared me to better be a salesperson than what I feel like we were training people toward the end of my career was to be cashiers that maybe knew a little bit. They weren't clerks. They weren't as focused on the gear knowledge as what it was when I came up.
1: I will like, say, and Trent, I think you'll agree with me, the certification program was great. Dude, it was awesome. That was so, that was top tier.
2: And, and that ended up morphing into something that became really great as a training tool. Like, there was cool modules on the computer you could do. Like, there was always gear modules coming out for all the new gear, where they were, like, little videos from the manufacturer, mm-hmm. like, telling you about, like... That ended up becoming, that was something they did that, yeah, it was great. Like, that kind of thing was fantastic. But as it shifted from such a focus on sales, you started losing all those OGs, the vets, that were the guys that had the guys that really were the backbone of the store sales.
1: Yeah, because at that point, your top salespeople were taking a pay cut. Yes,
0: well, that's that's i wasn't even in guitar center and i knew that's what's that's what was happening they were trying to uh beef up the low producers to keep them you know to lower the turnover and they were at the expense of the top producers
1: I.E. Yeah. Brandon. yeah i,
0: yeah. I. e cheney brandon rob yep. darzik i mean i gotta i gotta listen i don't i don't i'm sure you know i don't know who wanted wants to be named or anything like that. But there's let's just say that there was a lot of folks that the locals gained by virtue of that commission that struck that change and <laughs> I wasn't even working there and I can and I and I,
1: you know, remember but there's something that was was mentioned here that I, I think carries over and you heard me say this when I was working with you, Adam, is if you can't tech it, you shouldn't sell it. Right. And And that strictly came from you were not allowed to sell out of certain departments at GC until you hit a certain level of certification and you knew what you needed to know. And that is one thing that at that point in time, GC was doing fantastic. And and these black shirts, I have so many of these because I had to go through it all. Right. And and what would happen is every time you got quote unquote certified, they send you a shirt and they sent you a lanyard. Right. But the key was if you did not hit a certain level on these things, basically if you didn't get all A's, you weren't allowed to go to pro audio on sale. You weren't allowed to sell out of drums. You weren't allowed to sell, you know, if you were in pro audio, you couldn't sell a guitar. That was that was the way it was. And those were not easy either. No, that shit was fucking hard, man. When you got the pro audio. Yeah.
0: I took one, I took one of those and it was it was not as I'm a, it was a pro audio guy and it was it was not no it
1: was not it's easy. not. No. And and that was the thing that that disturbed me about our location, Adam, was you've got somebody who's trying to run over everybody and sell everything under the fucking sun, but if they called and asked that person for guidance, they'd have to turn it over to somebody else.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, and and that's the, the, I don't want to say the struggle. It is the struggle. It's the struggle when you work in a smaller operation. It's, it's the struggle. And when I say smaller, I mean, you're still talking about at the time I was working there, you know, $15 million a year operation. It wasn't like, you know, a mom and pop shop necessarily, but when you, the the whole premise of the idea, the whole premise of that is that owners and, you know, managers have less people to manage, less people to pay. So, and if it's not, if it's not broken in their eyes, you know, why would you fix it? He, this person is selling at a, you know, at a good clip who cares, you know, whatever else, who cares what bodies are left in the wake, but. But as long as, you
1: but know you know that if a phone call went up the chain, saying that this person, after they sold something, and there was a negative response to them reaching out to this person for any kind of support, all of a sudden that flips a little bit, right? It,
0: yeah, but but Steve, I I think you know that. Like, it, it, what what does it really equate to? It
1: equates to exactly.
0: Rolled. They roll. They roll their eyes and they say, oh, you know, here's, you know, Johnny Do Gooder, you know, who's, you know, selling, you know, selling guitars, but they're a band orchestra person. And the, you know, they took a return on a guitar because it was out of tune or they sold a guitar with a broken headstock and they didn't know. You know what I mean? It's just it's one of those things where when you the when the person who signs the checks, when the person who is. Uh, you know, their name is on the door, so Correct. to speak. Right. Uh, You know, Mr. Guitar Center wasn't rolling through, but like in, in our case, the guy who signed the checks, he would, he could show up Hit at any, any moment. Time. When you have that dynamic, there's a lot of eye rolling. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you know, this person, uh, the leash is very long, you know, if you can sell, if you are producing for the company and you know, this is true yep. in corporate, you know, world too. I mean, I'm sure Trent and you can talk all day about people who got away with probably everything leading up to actual murder in stores. And you know, because they produced, because they sold. I mean, I, I've watched. I've watched people. You know, I, I watched an employee uh, uh, lie into me. You know, who, I was supposedly the preeminent store manager in the company. I watched an employee lie and scream and throw things at me in front of ownership and they weren't going to do anything. because This person was a top producer. It's, you know, if you're, if you're bringing in dollars, you, the sacrificial lamb is any, is everyone else.
1: Yeah, correct. And Very. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on this subject a little bit later, but to your point, um, when something gets returned and, uh, they neg you with return and they take a sale. But for some positive stuff, Irish says, you guys worked in a place where you have common interests with coworkers. Did that feel much different to other retail where there isn't a common interest? Um, yes. I would say the most positive thing about all of our experiences, period. It, it doesn't matter if, if it went sour or if you didn't leave on the terms you wanted to or anything like that. The one thing I think we all have in common Here and you guys can correct me. Is it was an absolute joy to work in a building with people who had the same passion for the things that you did? Correct? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was.
0: It made it made it gave. Well, it gives everyone something to talk about. It gives everything. If the if the conversation ever gets weird or political or something, it always gives you something to circle back to, and that is so important when you spend more time with these people than you do your own family. Like, yeah, you, you, you can't, you can't, ha- you can't all be there. You know, nobody want, grows up wants and wants to sling gear and <laughs> nobody wants to grow up and sell pots. You know what I mean? But if you're going to sell something that you like, like, you know, in this case, guitars, drums, music equipment, there's, is kind of the best case scenario.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I- would you both not agree that when times are good, because look, all businesses go through ups and downs, all right? That it, that just happens. But when times are good and you're working, and, and I think it's kind of specific to musicians. The only other place I could see it being similar is... Like, if you're a crafter and you work for, like, Joann's, Michael's, or Hobby Lobby, that's the only thing I really can kind of equate it to. There's a a magic about working around the things you love. And, you know, I've said this before on different episodes, you know, you find yourself in in a headspace where everybody else in any kind of selling business, retail or whatnot, dreads truck day. But if you're in this business, and this is what you're passionate about, truck days are like Christmas. It's like, what new oh, cool okay. shit are we getting? And it's really hard to convey that to people. People just really don't understand unless they've been in it. And, you know, like, it's kind of appropriate. We're doing this right now, and it's, damn. Oh, damn.
0: Oh wow! Yeah. It's Nam. Yeah, Nam's wow. going on
1: right now in L.A. And you know, it there's that that like ooh ah tingling feeling when you're sitting at a computer at your job looking at the Nam feed to see what's coming and wondering if the boss is going to bring it in the store because it's cool and you want to try it out. And the one thing I give Guitar Center credit a whole you know a lot of credit for was. When did they, um, Gain, Trent, when did they get rid of Gain? Uh,
2: Dude, I think even when I let go, Gain was still a thing, to be honest with you.
1: Right. All right. Adam, are you familiar with what Gain was for GC? All right. No. Gain was a program for employees that, you know, you could go in and look at and it was kind of like a marketplace. Basically what it was is it was deep discount deals on new gear that was coming out, okay? And what would happen is the whole concept was if a Guitar Center employee got this super stellar deal on something, and and we're talking like some of these deals were below what you would get as an employee discount, okay? I mean, like really, really good deals. Yeah, yeah. And with the point of... You get this merchandise, you're excited about this merchandise, and the payoff is you go sell that merchandise. That is something that GC did that was absolutely amazing. Now, look, I know Behringer is a very um, touchy subject with a lot of people. Okay. But when Behringer released their first set of studio monitors that had ribbon tweeters in them, knocking off the Atoms, yeah. I got a pair of those and they were eight. No, yeah, they were eight inch speakers. I got a pair of those for a hundred dollars at retail. They were like almost two hundred dollars a piece. That's what GC had there for a while to get people excited about this stuff, and um, and you know, to your point, Adam. You, I know where your head was kind of, It was a big corporation. They had the power to be able to do that. Okay, they they had the financing and they had the yeah. agreements and whatnot.
0: Five hundred stores to five. is, 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 ex- is a, Exactly. Is a ratio. So,
1: so that's not lost on me. But if you have a company, and that's the sad thing about Guitar Center. Look we can say whatever we want to about competition. Guitar center has just kind of like fallen off for quite a while. And, you know, they, they went through bankruptcy and they, they kind of came out of it. And I, I'm just going to go right record. say here, the GC here locally is awful. I, I would only go there to get strings, to be honest with you. So where,
2: abandoned one here in Peoria for
1: man, a long time. Hmm. Have you been in the one? Up there, Adam?
0: Uh, man, I haven't been, not since I moved back. I think uh, the last time I was in that store was uh, maybe seven years ago, something like that. But uh, Delaware is tax free. So it remains pretty busy, but it's, uh,
1: it's a. Um, yeah, I haven't. So you, so you moved back to Delaware, correct? So yeah. how many. Do you have Sam Ash there at all? No. The nearest Sam Ash to me is a
0: hour plus. Wow. In Plymouth meeting. Well, Sam
1: Ash was nothing in the Atlanta market. That was that was garbage.
0: Oh yeah. I know I, that. I will say this of all the music stores I've been to, uh, the Sam Ash in, and I don't know anybody that works there anymore. So I don't feel bad saying this was the most
1: disgusting
0: retail establishment.
1: Like, was it not? It was, it was, I had oh, ever it was been. always awful. It's been like that for like a decade, Adam, that store was nasty as
0: shit. I, I had scouted that store. I mean, you know, so many times, And I got to tell you, I have, I don't know how anyone let that slide. I don't know how anyone
2: let that slide. You mentioned something that as a store manager and even as a customer service manager, but scouting, scouting the competition. That,
1: that was a whole thing too. Well, what kind of, yeah, that was, what kind of competition did you have in Peoria? Uh,
2: a very well established mom and pop shop, right? Florida. That what was the name? Flory's of Flores Music. Where it's in Peoria, Illinois. Oh, I'm sorry. What was the
0: name of it? Oh,
2: music. oh. Flores Music. Fl- Flores Flores Flores. What? Oh, but mm-hmm. they've been here. I mean, 50 plus years, right? And they carry things that. The inventory system changed at one point to where you used to, like Steve said, you'd be like, oh, you talk to your store manager, hey, can we get this piece of gear in so we can try it? And da 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 da. da. And you used to be able, to, there was a point where you could just kind of request gear. Yep. And you could get it to your store. But there came a point when that stopped and this new inventory system rolled out. And it really downsized a lot of what some you know. I was in Peoria, a smaller market. I was in uh, Des Moines, which a medium sized market, but you know we weren't carrying the cool high end pieces that people were excited about. You know what I mean? Like Guitar Center didn't carry carry Mesa Boogie amps when I when I was with them. I'm sorry, did carry them. But they were only allocated. Got to a point where they were only allocated to very specific stores, right? In in large markets, pretty much only, exclusively. So, like a small store like Peoria, there was no way we could get. It got to a point where there was no way where we could get like a cool dual rectifier half stack, even like the head and a two twelve
1: cab. Oh, do you there remember? Was, do you remember my full stack wall? Yeah. Yeah, that was dope. Anyway, continue. But, you know, the competition,
2: however, they carried all the cool Mesa Boogie shit. They had all the cool Ibanez Prestige guitars. They had PRS guitars. Like, they carried everything that we couldn't carry. Stuff that we couldn't even get if we wanted to. That they just wouldn't get to our stuff. You know,
0: that was the strategy with some of those brands, though, is that they would... They would go like they saw what Fender, what GC did Defender, and then started to kind of well, like, put their fingers into some yes. of boogie stores. Like Mesa Boogie
2: had a deal where there could only be one dealer, or like so many dealers
0: per per county. Per,
2: you know, yep. So like Florey's had the Mesa Boogie dealership. There was no way
1: that we can get it. Mm-hmm. To your you point, know. to your point, Adam, you are one hundred percent right. You know, you are going down the debt train there. Yes, we know what GC did Defender. All right. And yeah. I mean, All look, right. you say what you want to about the gear, but how bad does it look that at some point in time Behringer says you're not selling our shit? Think about that mm. for a minute. You know, and well, now if I'm not mistaken, yeah. now there's no PRS, there's no Mesa. Um the the local GC here, I mean, half the guitar wall is empty. Okay, and so go ahead, Trent.
2: It became so focused on proprietary gear, like there there became a point. Laguna, late late in the time when I Laguna is what started it, but then it was Harbinger Mm -hmm. for pro equipment, right? right? And then there was Mitchell
1: guitars. No, which, Mitchell. Sorry. Mitchell predated Laguna. Mitchell had always been a GC brand. Right. Well,
0: they had never got. Well, they weren't the only one. No, to Trent's point, they weren't the only ones too. Because then you had a Carlo Ribelli was Ash's mm-hmm. brand. You yeah, had everybody um, kind of had
2: you know, their own they,
0: thing. Right, they did. They had oh. their everybody had in band and orchestra. John Baptiste was the big thing for yeah. no, Smash.
2: like. Uh, later in my, the, the later points in my career, like when we'd be having the big sales of the year, you know, like the Memorial Day sale was always a real big one. Labor Day
0: sale was always, always a
2: real big one. You know what I mean? Black Friday. Like, all those deals for those, those sales, customers might get a 10 or 15% off coupon if they're lucky, or the deals are on um, private label shit. Quite frankly, the shitty proprietary gear.
1: Right. Private label. Calls calls GC Balt Simmons, correct? Yeah. All right. So you had Simmons. Yeah, those
2: Simmons
1: drum kits. Mitchell? They had an acoustic um, Acoustic. drum kit, too. Oh, oh. I've got the best one, Trent. I got the best one. You ready? When they tried to revive fucking Delta Labs... Oh yeah, with the effects pedals, those were terrible. Although I will say their version of the Tube Screamer was a direct knockoff of the TSA. Wait, I will say that. Yeah, for the most part, the—I mean,
2: for the most part, most of that gear was pretty awful. Mm. Raven
1: amplifiers.
2: Uh, Raven
1: amps.
0: I I got so many drum. I got so many virtual drum set deals from people just. Going to play Simmons drums, like they would just go. I would. They would say they would come into the shop. Well, why is this Roland so expensive? I can get a Simmons. Go ahead. See in see in uh, twenty eight days when you return it to Guitar Center yeah. and come back
1: and get all right. Rolling. So and there's yeah. a, there's a couple of questions in the chat that I think we all would love to address. So let me get these out of the way real quick. All right. So Irish <laughs> okay. connection. Just curious, I know nothing about music retail. What kind of money do people drop there? Was a few hundred a normal sale or are most sales strings and plugs? Boy, do we have a story for you. And then Brent asked, what kind of quality did a private label guitar have versus a national brand? So who wants to take question number one from Irish? Well, okay. I'll take What was it again? Uh, just curious, what kind of money do people drop there?
0: Oh, these are these are fishing. Oh, I'll right? let Adam
1: do. I'll let Adam do this one because he's got brass, and he he's uh when you get in the oh, yeah, band yeah. instruments, that's next level.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um. All right. So think of it this way: if you have during a what we call rental season now in Georgia, this was like you know August sometime. So what we would do is your average horn so your your horns are broken into three tiers your instruments right your you know, your saxophones trumpets trombones things like that your middle schoolers are going to rent that's that's fine whatever no big deal right your high schoolers i mean it was it was like i think somebody said in the chat it's like fish in a barrel the band directors tell the kids they have to get these things they say you know you're you're a good player now you have to get x y and z and the parents come into the store like this is their homework. Like I got to get this thing. You know what I mean? It's like the new backpack. <laughs> I I know for a fact I have had I had twin sisters that were in that were juniors in high school, both music bound, uh, music uh, major bound. One was a saxophone player. One was a French horn player. And so and, and I say this for Irish Connection like th- this wasn't like something that people came in and said, oh, I want to buy a nice horn because I feel like it. This was like they were told they had to do it. Uh, that was 10,000 out the door. <laughs> and so so you figure if I'm selling on an average August or so, a, a normal, you know, month for me, if I could get my whole team around 10 to 15 thousand dollars. Uh, a month. That was great. You know Um, if I sold less than 45 to 60,000 just in that month, I would, that was a disappointment. So if you're, if you're in the right place, I was in the right store uh, for that. I would go from, you know, I would have a fraction of the inventory. Steve, Mm -hmm. you remember uh, my, my entire store was, I don't know, 35, maybe 2,500 square feet. And not sell- not selling I would space, go from, but yeah. <laughs> right, not selling space. I would go from number, you know out of like 60 salespeople, I would go from about 20 to 25 on my best month. 11 months of the year during August, I would easily go to number one, two, or three. So it, it, in terms of the money people drop, depending on what you want guitars, a few hundred bucks, I'm feeling pretty good about that. Uh, but when you got into the band and orchestra, I mean yeah, if you if you let a if you let someone walk for less than twenty five hundred,
1: dollars you, you missed an opportunity. Yeah, Irish. It's it's big the business is big money. And even from a guitar standpoint, if you're in a guitar driven market, um, I will tell you in my heyday when Guitar Center was going on with uh Guitar Hero when all that was done, it was not uncommon and Trent, I think you will confirm it was not uncommon to sell a couple of thousand dollar guitars a day oh yeah yeah i mean it 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 was crazy lenny steve oh lenny oh oh yeah let me tell the story all right so if you're a musician and you do watch this this is this was some of the cool stuff that guitar center did guitar center for one owns a lot of iconic guitars. So uh, do they own Lenny? And they gave it out to Fender to reproduce. Is that correct? Trent? Uh, Yes, I I think they bought it off of his wife. Right. So they, they own Lenny. They own the SRV number one. They own they own, Blackie, they own Blackie from Eric Clapton, so Guitar Center sitting on these iconic guitars from all kinds of music. They own this shit. So the yeah, coolest
2: like the, number two Les Paul or something like yeah, that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and the cool yeah the coolest thing that ever fucking happened was Fender did a run of Lenny, Stevie Ray Vaughan's Lenny guitar reproductions. And and the yeah, RVs. and what happened was the Fender rep came around to the stores with the real Lenny. And now, if you're a guitar player worth your salt, and you know who the fuck Stevie Ray Vaughan is, and they bring you this guitar, and you, I, I got to sit down and play Stevie Ray Vaughan's guitar.